Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. I said last week that as we came to chapter 8, we're sort of at a pinnacle in the book of Romans. And we continue that pinnacle even today into what is for many people one of their favorite passages and some of their favorite verses in all of Scripture. And as we come to this point today, and we're going to take a break for two weeks after this to talk about church attendance and church membership, and then we'll come back in three weeks and jump back into Romans 9 as we go through the rest of Romans together. But as we come to this point in the book of Romans, I wanted to ask the question, what is the driving force behind all that we've seen from the start of our study through the book of Romans? We started looking at the call of God, the power of God in the gospel, the wrath of God against sin, the judgment of God that is coming against sin, the verdict of God against sinners for our guilt, the righteousness of God that's given through faith in Jesus Christ, the promises of God that are given through faith in Christ, peace with God, life with God, the gift of righteousness from God, freedom from God. The last couple of weeks, we looked at the law of God and how God uses the law to convict us of our sin and bring us to Christ, and then uses the law to further our walk with Christ, how he's given us the spirit of God. And last week, we looked at the great purpose of God. But what is the driving force behind all of this? What is the driving power behind all of this? We might say the holiness of God. We might look at it and say, no, it's the wrath of God. It's the grace of God. What brings condemned sinners, enemies of God, rebels to his law, into a standing of grace and justification with a new life as new creations? What brings them to an understanding of God's call? The call of God who has known them from all eternity past, as we saw last week. Who has predestined them for glory from all eternity. What makes that golden chain that we talked about last week so invincible and so unbreakable? What makes this promise of glory so certain? I'll submit to you today, along with the Apostle Paul, as we'll see, that it is the great love of God. And you say, the love of God, that doesn't sound very powerful, It doesn't sound so strong, that doesn't sound so invincible. Where's the might? Where's the power? Where's the vengeance? Where's the wrath? That love of God doesn't sound so strong and invincible. And say that you don't quite yet understand the love of God. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. We'll read to the end of this chapter today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God our Father, this is your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. As we hear it read and hear it preached today, I ask that your spirit would move in power that in hearing, we might be changed. That we might hear the voice of our shepherd, Jesus Christ, calling us to the great, unfathomable, invincible, unbreakable love that you have for us. God, direct our hearts there this morning by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one today from this passage, nothing can stand against you. Nothing can stand against you. As we come into verse 31, you see how Paul sort of uses that little rhetorical question to move us along in the passage. After we went through all that we went through last week about how God has predestined us and called us and justified us and how he will glorify us and nothing can stand in the way of his purpose for his people, we come to verse 31 and Paul asks to move us along, what shall we say to these things? What is left to be said? It's Paul's way of saying, this is too big for me to even understand. This is too wonderful for me to even unpack. Nothing in this world can touch the glory that awaits believers. And so all Paul can say in verse 31 is this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the Holy Spirit is within the people of God, interceding for them as we saw last week, praying for them, testifying to their spirit that they are indeed the children of God and testifying to them about the glory that awaits them. If it is God who knew them before time and who predestined them and who called them, who justified them. And verse 30 says, it's as if they are already glorified. God did it. God called them. Who can say anything to that? Who can stand in the way of the purpose of God? And that's exactly Paul's point. If God is for us, if God is the one doing this, if God is the one calling, and it's the purpose and the will of God to sanctify you and to glorify you and to bring you home at last, who can stop that? And Paul's obvious answer is no one and nothing. And what has God done to make this a reality? He tells us in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What has God done to make this a reality? Why is this so unstoppable? Why is God's plan for his people so unbreakable? Because he has secured it through the death and the blood of his only son. And might I remind you, back in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he did this while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait to see a change of heart in us. 
He wasn't waiting for some response in us. While we were still sinners, while we were in the condition that Paul says we have been in from the beginning, rotten and dead and not seeking God and separated from God, while we were still there, God sent his son in his great love to die for us. And verse 9 of that same chapter says, listen, that's the hard part. Paul says if God has sent his own son, how much more so? If Jesus has died for you, how much more will he not raise you? See what Paul is saying? Remember back in chapter 5 we talked about this. The hard part has been done in the giving of his only son, Jesus Christ. The most difficult hurdle is past when Jesus said it is finished and when he rose from the dead. The hard part is done in Jesus' death for sinners. And so God, Paul is saying here by the Holy Spirit, the rest... The rest is an easy promise to keep. He's already sent his son to die for you while you were still a sinner. The hard part is gone. Now the promises are easy and they're guaranteed. Paul is saying he gave his only son for you. What will he withhold from you now? Now we have to be careful. Look at verse 32. That phrase all things the prosperity gospel preachers and teachers would like to use this verse to say that if God has given his only son for you then he will readily give you everything that you want and of course the name it claim it gospel of claiming money and wealth and health and success for yourself and God intends that for you and you should just reach out by faith in Jesus name and take it he wants that for you that's not what this verse intends Remember, put everything in its proper context. If we see that phrase in verse 32, all things, where have we seen that phrase before? Back in chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for the good of those that love God who are called according to his purpose. And verse 29 reminds us what those all things are. It's not houses and money and land and notoriety and health on on the dime when you just claim it in Jesus' name. What is the all things? What is God working for your good, verse 29? That you will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to verse 32, Paul has the same thing in mind. He is working all things for your good to make you like Jesus. And once he has given Jesus for you, now he will graciously give you everything else you need to be made like Jesus. Romans 8 verse 30 tells us, to the end that you will be glorified in heaven. If he has given Jesus for you, and he foreknew you, and he predestined you, and he called you, and he justified you, he will glorify you without fail. If that's God's promise from all eternity, and if God has given his only son for you already, all things, everything else, can only work to serve that purpose. Your becoming like Jesus. Your glorification. You might say this morning, yes, I understand that. My circumstances, my suffering, my trials, and all those things... And all those things, we talked about that last week, suffering, trials, and hardships, and pain, and loss, and how God is using those things and working in those things to make us like Jesus. You say, yes, pastor, I understand that. 
All the hardship, all the suffering, all of that God is using to make me more like Jesus. But what about my sin? That's a separate category, isn't it? The circumstances of what is going on around us and what is happening to us in our bodies, our minds, our lives, our families, our jobs. We understand God is using all those things to make us more like Jesus. But what about my sin against him? Verse 33 gives us some good news. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Yes, God is using my suffering and my trials to make me more like Jesus. But you see, Pastor, even as a believer, I still have sin in my life. What do I do with that? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who can point a finger at you and find any fault or any sin when Jesus has paid it all for you? Now, he uses that word elect there, and that makes folks a little nervous. Unnecessarily so, I think. Who are the elect? Back in verse 30, we were told who the elect are, right? And those, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we did this little exercise last week. I want us to repeat it again this week. In verse 30, of all those whom he predestined, who will he call? All. And of all those that he calls, who will he then justify? All. And of all those whom he justifies, who will he glorify? All. And so the those of verse 30, the all that God has known and chosen and justified and promises to glorify, the all of verse 30 is the same subjects in verse 33. If God has made those promises to those, all that he has justified and promises to glorify, if that is his promises to all of those, who can bring a charge against them? And you might hear that word and say, well, pastor, how do I know if I'm elect? Isn't that the question that comes up sometimes? How do I know God's plan for me? How do I know if I'm of the elect? Well, a simple question to clarify that for you this morning. Have you believed in Jesus for salvation? Have you believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation? And if you have, you can plug yourself into that chain of verse 30. And let's just work it backwards. If you have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, verse 30, you will be glorified and if you will be glorified you have been justified by faith in Christ right and if you have been justified keep going backwards you have been called and if you have been called then you have been predestined you can know your part in this chain of salvation not by some mystery That we can't just figure out. You can know your part in this chain. Listen. By faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ by faith. You are justified. And you have a part in these promises. You have a part in what Paul says in verse 33. The last part. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Look. It is God who justifies. 
It is God who justifies you through faith in Christ. Who can bring a charge against that? And if God has justified you by the blood of his own son, Jesus, and if he will spare nothing to see to your glorification and your salvation, verse 34 is even better news. There is nothing and no one who can condemn you. Who is to condemn? If God is the one who declares you not guilty, who can rise up against the voice of God and say, no, 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 they actually are guilty? And Paul says, no one. No one can rise against the pardon of God for you and then declare you guilty. Listen, not even Satan himself. You know that word we use for the devil, Satan, means the accuser. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. Now, I know we think of Satan as the tempter, the evil one, the Lord of darkness, the Lord of sin. The Bible calls him the Lord of filth. But how often do you think of him as your accuser? The one who points to the law of God and then points at you and says, you don't measure up to that. You might as well just give up. You might as well just stop trying. Now the Holy Spirit brings conviction, but conviction is different from accusation. The Holy Spirit in the life of a believer brings conviction when you hear the law, when you hear the word of God, and something tells you, I'm not measuring up to this. I'm saved by faith in Christ, not, my, not by my works, but I need to adjust this area of my life to match who I am in Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's conviction of sin, pointing you not to yourself, but to Christ who says, yes, you have sin. Look to Jesus. Repent. Turn to him. Satan's accusations seem similar because you hear your guilt, you might feel bad for yourself, but instead of pointing you to Jesus, what does accusation do? It points you back at yourself. And doesn't Satan just love to do that with your sins and with your failures? Is it any wonder he's called the accuser of the brethren? Back in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet sees a vision of the high priest Joshua. And I'm going to let you do all the fun word studies about Joshua and, and the angel of the Lord and all that stuff. I'm going, to, I'm going to simplify this story real quick. Zechariah has this vision of Joshua the high priest. And he's set to go in and to serve the Lord, but he's got a problem. His clothes are dirty. And if you know your Old Testament, you know Leviticus, and you know the specifications for priests, you don't just come in any way you want into the presence of God. And here is this high priest who has filthy, dirty clothes. And don't you know Satan, the accuser, listed by name there as Satan, the accuser, is there in the presence of God with Joshua who has the dirty clothes on, pointing his finger at Joshua and accusing him of having dirty clothes. And God doesn't disagree with Satan. Joshua doesn't disagree with Satan. But there in the midst of this seemingly impossible situation, the angel of the Lord, and I'll let you again do the study on that, the angel of the Lord steps in with clean clothes for Joshua. 
and a clean belt and a clean turban to put on his head so that he exchanges his filthy robes for these new garments of righteousness with which he can serve the Lord. Isn't that the book of Romans? Isn't that what we've been seeing so far? That we stand justly condemned? That we stand sentenced to sin from head to toe all the way through, rightly accused by God's law, rightly accused by the devil who points his finger at us? That's the thing. The devil is not wrong in his accusation. Satan is not wrong in his accusation. He's right. We are sinners. And if the verdict is true, guilty, and if the sentence is just, according to the law, the wages of sin is death, what do we deserve from God? Isn't that what Romans brings us to? If we stand before God, filthy and tainted, as was Joshua the high priest, and and Satan is standing there saying, sinner, and the law is standing there saying, condemned, what answer is there? Until this one from God steps into the room and takes away our filthy robes and gives us his own spotless robes of righteousness. The verdict that was read for me, guilty, is turned into a sentence that is given to him. In verse 34, Paul tells us this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. The just verdict read to me, guilty because of sin, but the sentence laid on him. And yet he gives me his robes while he takes my filthy garments upon himself. And in Zechariah's vision, we're left with this question. What left is there to say against Joshua the high priest? God has taken his filthy robes. He's given him his own clean robes of righteousness. And the devil has nothing less to say, nothing more to say. And that's what Paul says here. The devil has nothing to say to you. There is no accusation thrown at the people of God that can stick because we are covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now I know, listen. It's a holiday weekend. You might be a little warm in here this morning. I'm I'm not one of these that likes to ask for amens. But let me tell you something. This is the most life-altering, earth-shaking, eternity-changing news you can hear on a Sunday morning. When I tell you that God has taken your filthy robes of sin... That God has taken your filthy garments of sin and unrighteousness and guilt and shame. And he placed them on his only son and crucified them there so that you could be covered with his perfect spotless righteousness and be declared not guilty. That is good news. Amen? God has called you. God has justified you. God has freed you. God has revived you. God has declared you right. And so who rises above the voice of God to refute his pardon on you? And Paul says, no one. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God has declared you righteous... 
who can bring a charge against you? Even sweeter, Paul says in verse 34, this Jesus Christ who died is the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Even sweeter is the promise that just as the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Remember last week in verses 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings and utterings that are too deep for words. When you don't have the words, when you don't know how to pray, when you don't know what to pray in your suffering and your hurt and your anguish and your pain, the Holy Spirit is there praying through you and for you. And the good news doubled up again this week is so is Jesus. Jesus is there interceding on your behalf right now at the right hand of God the Father. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. In other words, he says, I want you not to sin. The goal of the Christian life is to become more and more like Jesus. And so there is this desire not to sin. But he's not naive to the fact that we will sin. And so he says, and if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate is a special word. You look at it in Greek, it's the word paraclete. You know who else is called the paraclete? The helper, the comforter, the advocate. The Holy Spirit is called that in the Gospel of John. And so we see this beautiful picture of the Son and the Spirit in beautiful, perfect, united harmony interceding for the people of God. The Spirit there interceding in those moments of pain and suffering and anguish when you don't have the words groaning for you. And now we see the Son, Jesus, In those moments of failure, those moments of sin, bringing you to repentance as he prays for you. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, breathing the right words to God according to the will of God when you don't have any words to say. The Son presenting his righteousness to God when you don't have any. What heavenly dialogue that must be. Don't you think the Father hears those prayers? Do you think the Father hears the prayers of His Son? Do you think the Father hears the prayers of the Holy Spirit for you? Do you think the Father hears those prayers and says, No? No, because back in verse 27, it says that when the Spirit prays, He knows the mind of God, and God knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit prays for you the absolute will of God. And the Father does not say no to the Spirit, and the Father does not say no to His Son. What rest there is, people of God, what promise, what joy, what assurance. Believers this morning, listen to me. If you're weighed down in your battles with sin and you're weighed down in your battles with temptation, you're burdened by your failures and your sins, believers accused by your conscience and the devil, 
Remember that quote from Luther I gave you a few weeks back, Martin Luther, who said, yeah, I'm a sinner, what of it? I know one who died in my place and who made satisfaction for me, Jesus Christ the righteous. Yes, you're right, I am a sinner, but I know the righteous one. And if he stands there for me, who and what can be against me? We sing this in the hymn we sing before the throne of God above. That he stands there on our behalf. What tongue can bid me thence depart? Jesus stands there for me. I am there in him. And if Jesus is there for me and I am there with him, what tongue and what accusation can make me leave from the presence of God? What can be against us? And Paul says, no one and nothing. Now I want you to hear me very carefully this morning. This is not the message of so much of modern Christianity. This is not the message of so so much so-called modern Christian music which pumps us up with a bunch of self-help mumbo-jumbo for those who feel bad about themselves and who are beating up on themselves and just says, it's okay, God loves you, God's for you, you know, get over it and move on. No, this is a message of gospel good news for people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, who know their sin and who know their need of a Savior. And this is good news that points us to that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he saves you, he saves you to the uttermost. Second today, nothing can separate you. Let's just read these verses together beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written... For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't need me to explain this one to you this morning. We can just read those words and just revel in the glory and the beauty as Paul can can barely contain himself for the joy and the worship that is overwhelming his soul. Nothing can stand against us in the presence of God because nothing can separate us from the great love of God. You see what Paul says here? Not anything in this world and not anything in the spiritual world Not anything in this life, and not anything in the life to come. Paul wants us to see this absolute insistence here. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Absolutely nothing. Through him who loved us, through him who gave himself for us, through him who knew us, who predestined us, who called us, by him who justified us, and by him who will glorify us. It is already a done deal. No charge will stand. No power will separate. 
No devil will thwart. No persecution will extinguish. No sin will sever. No trial will threaten. If the answer is, what can separate us from the love of God, verse 39, nothing can separate you from the great love of God. He chose you. He will have you. He died for you. He will have you. He made you for glory. And you will be there. Why? Because, friends, that great love of God which he set on you, that great love of God which he set on you, for no other reason than for his own glory before all time and eternity. That great love that you have in him is invincible, impenetrable, unstoppable, and immovable. Nothing will stop it. John MacArthur said famously, if we could lose our salvation, we already would have. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? If it were possible for you to lose your salvation, you already would have. Jesus is the one who gave himself for us. Jesus is the one who rose. Jesus is the one who intercedes. Do you see where Paul points us time after time after time after time? away from ourselves and to Jesus. And if the question is, can Jesus fail? You know the answer to that. He will not fail. His love for you will not fail. You might fail time without number. You might fail again and again and again and again, but God never will. Another prophet from the Old Testament today, Jeremiah 31 verse 3. God says through the prophet to the people of Israel, his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, when we think of the word eternal, everlasting, eternal, we, we, we think And it's hard for our finite minds to grasp, I understand. So just bear with me for a moment. I'll make it simple, hopefully by the end of it. When we think of eternal love, that's not just love that can never end. That's true. But you know the word eternal simply means without time. In eternity... And the concept of the eternal, there is no past, present, or future. We talk about eternity past and eternity future. That's really nonsense because there's just eternity. The utter timelessness that is God. And so it's hard for us to understand what eternal means. That is literally without time. Without past. Without present. Without future. Now listen. The mystery of mysteries is that God will never stop loving you 
by the simple fact that because his love is eternal, listen, his love for you never merely began. Gerhardus Voss, his great Dutch theologian, said it this way, and hang on, I promise. The best proof, the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. What we are for him and what he is for us belongs to the realms of eternity. Can you wrap your mind around that this morning? I can't either. I know it means this. God will never stop loving me as his beloved child. And that love will bring me all the way home without fail. Without fail. Because there was never a time in the mind and the eternity of God, there was never a time when he did not love me. It will never end for you because it simply never began. It has always been there in the eternal mind and will and purpose of God. You want me to make it simpler for you this morning? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Nothing in all creation will ever stop that love. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table today, I'm going to give you a few moments of quiet reflection. Yes, number one, I I want you to spend some time in confession and then we're going to confess together. But even as you confess, reflect upon the great love of God. That this table we come to Unlike baptism, we come to this table again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because just as baptism is the sign that we have become God's children, the Lord's Supper is the sign that we are still yet God's children. And he invites us to his table every single time. Knowing that we're sinners, knowing that we're weak, knowing that we've fallen since the last time we came, But having provided a Savior who opens his hands to you at this table and says, Come, all who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Will you bow your heads and and pray for a moment of quiet reflection and be still in the presence of God as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table? Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604.
We'll see you next time.